Well, folks, welcome to the Nobleman Podcast. This is episode 28, and our title for this one is The Noble Man Needs Honest Brothers to Walk in Sexual Integrity. Our guest for the day is Nate Larkin. Now, Nate is the author of a book called Samson and the Pirate Monks, and he's the founder of a ministry that's got traction literally around the world called the Samson Society. So we're going to hear from Nate today. Nate, so glad you're with us. Thanks for taking time to be part of this podcast. Well, it's a joy. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Now, I, I have a confession for you. I I was aware of your book and had heard of the Samson Society, heard people talk about it for, for a number of years. I heard you speak at an NCMM event in Nashville a couple of years ago, was fascinated. I think we exchanged cards, but I, I had not read your book. Um, and so I, I knew I had this scheduled because we we're doing this series on the nobleman walks in sexual integrity. So I listened to the audible version of your book. And let me let me just do a plug here now for audible for you guys who struggle with reading or don't have time to read. I love to read, but I, I can't read everything I want to. So I listened to some stuff. And Nate's book, to listen to it, just sucked me in. And um, so I just affirm listening to books. But, Nate, your story is powerful. Thank you for sharing it in such a valuable way through the book. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it, it, it only took about 14 years for me to do the audible version of the book. <laughs> uh, I don't know why it took me that long. But I had a, I had a fun time reading it, a fun time even remembering my story as, yeah. I, as I read it for a new audience. Well, I told a friend the other day that I said most of these books on Audible are read by someone else, but this is Nate actually reading the book. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it had emotion in it that was really cool. So I appreciate that. Hey, tell me, give us a quick snapshot of where you are in life. You start out the book talking about being at a baseball game with your 12-year-old son and you flash back and forth. But but where are you now in life, what kid-wise and everything? Yeah, well, I just turned 64 yesterday. So wow. I have that old Beatles song running through my head, wondering, will they still need me and will they still feed me? <laughs> but I'm a... Uh, <laughs> And Allie and I have uh, been married for 42 years. It is wow. nothing short of a miracle and a testament to the grace of the Christian woman that she and I are still married uh, because uh, for a long time I was uh, unfaithful to her. Wow. Uh, but the family's intact, not only intact, but stronger than it's ever been. So we're packing today for a family vacation in the mountains of North Carolina kids and grandkids will be coming out there to join us in a in a big cabin in the mountains for a couple of weeks uh and uh i still uh, am in business although i've handed a big part of the engineering business to my son who will be with us in north carolina so we'll be playing and working and doing that kind of thing uh and but i devote most of my time these days to the samson society it was just a just a privilege to be able to talk with men from around the world and to encourage them to walk together in the light, yeah. uh, you know, drop the personas. Let's just be real friends. Let's drop all the talking in code. Yeah. Let's trust the gospel and uh, stop performing for each yeah. other and let Jesus do the heavy lifting. It's, it's a little hard in today's experience, but you have to take the mask off at some point and, reveal yourself yeah so, yeah but, but you got to keep that covid mask on it seems in a lot of places so <laughs> hey i you just said something that caught my attention i deal with lots of guys who are are 
they have a story that they feel like God has given them to use in some way, but they can't see how they can do ministry and work and feed their family. You've done that. Talk about how God has used your story and advanced your business and allowed you to live in both those worlds. That's a not- yeah. It's yeah. It's absolutely yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. I kind of had this idea in my head. Uh, that I think is perpetuated a lot by contemporary American evangelical culture, that the legitimate Christian ministry is to be in full-time Christian ministry, which is you're being paid to do it. And that's the only legitimate ministry. Right. Uh, But I took inspiration, well, first of all, if you are public about sexual sin the way I have been public about sexual sin, Churches are not, and ministries are not lining up to hire you anyway. Right. Right, exactly. So, uh, but I took inspiration from the Apostle Paul, who, uh, you know, he was stubborn about doing whatever he could to support himself. And, uh, you know, so he had a tent-making ministry. And God was gracious when I left the pastoral ministry. Was never caught for what I was doing, but we'll talk about that. I left in despair. Um. God provided another way for me to make money in, yeah. in, a, in a field I knew nothing about, and I was able to prosper in that business. So the fact that uh, I've still been able to keep a business going, you know, that pays the bills, but I, I consider work, helping other men in recovery really my vocation and my calling. Yeah, that's the God, calling. Yeah. and I've But I've been able to do it without charging money, which is wonderful. Yeah. You know and I, it sounds like something God would orchestrate, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He can do things like that. Well, you you alluded to your story. So uh, I, I know we don't have a huge amount of time, but but give us an abbreviated version of your story that would speak to the man who, who may be walking a parallel path in some way. Yeah. You know, the strange thing is that I thought my story was completely unique. I was the only kid who made those early choices. I was the only guy who ever got deep in the weeds in pornography. I was the only guy in ministry with a pornography addiction. Turns out I'm not nearly as unique as I thought I was. But, you know, the details of my story are unique. I grew up uh, in a Christian home. My dad was a preacher. Uh, I'm the oldest of 10 kids. Uh, grew up in country churches and storefront churches, uh, deep in the holiness tradition of yeah. American evangelicalism. So uh, it was all about doing the right thing, looking right. Uh, holiness for us was defined by a very long list of things that real Christians do not do. So, uh, and then there was there was also always a message that I got not from what was said, but what wasn't said. There was a topic that really was not addressed in our church. Hmm. And we just didn't talk about porn. Yeah. Uh, my first look at porn took me completely by surprise. Nobody had told me that porn even existed. Yeah. Uh, and that in itself was a very strong message. Some things you don't even speak about. Right. So, um, I didn't know that every boy eventually sees porn. I didn't know that every boy instinctively likes porn because right. it it depicts something that we're wired by God to want. Um, I knew that it was wrong, but I didn't know why it was wrong. Um, and and today, uh, you know, that's a conversation that we have to have, and I have it quite often now with college kids and high school kids. 
because we live in a culture that is no longer clear uh, that that porn is wrong. Right. Uh, that that it actually is dangerous and destructive. We have to have that conversation. All I knew was, I, you know, I felt a lot of shame. I felt guilt. And I knew that it was not something I could talk about. And I think that's consistent with guys. Even today, we did a survey question about asking guys their first exposure to porn. And most guys say, I saw it. I was drawn to it and I knew it was wrong. I felt ashamed immediately. So there, boy, that's Satan at work corrupting God's great design right there in first exposure for almost every guy I talk to. Right, right, right. So I began, you know, uh, you know, at the age of, you know, 12, 13, this long, lonely, solo fight against uh, porn. And, uh, you know, I went through the cycles that every every guy goes through, you know, short periods of abstinence, you know, secret porn collections that I would purge, uh, you know, periodic trips to the altar always at, you know, at youth rallies or at retreats or at summer camp or, you know, uh, making more promises, begging God, beg- always grateful that I didn't actually have to tell another person. There was only one mediator yeah. between God and man. And I was going for forgiveness. I was always begging for a forgiveness that was already mine because I didn't understand the gospel. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and I didn't understand that that what I needed was not forgiveness. I needed healing. Hmm. I was using porn arrived as a very powerful medicator for deep wounds in my life. Yeah. Because I'd grown up, uh, you know, in a family that had its own dysfunction. And then the added trauma of my mother's mental illness that began when I was eight, her suicide when I was nine, uh, just an awful lot of crazy stuff that went on. Sure. So, uh, you know, porn is a powerful medicator. It, it really can provoke this dopamine cascade in the brain that for a moment just makes the world seem right. Yeah. And if we feel alone, if, we, if, if somehow we don't have that deep emotional attachment that all of us need to, to, to survive and thrive, there is this temporary sense of attachment that Mm. comes. I think that's the most pernicious property of pornography. It offers an illusion of connection, Uh, you know, a a, a momentary virtual connection with an imaginary person. Right. Who accepts you unconditionally. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, 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 There's zero risk of rejection. Yeah. And, and uh, if you accept that invita- invitation, it begins at that moment, I have found, to compromise your ability to actually form and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. That's the most dangerous thing about porn. Yep. It cripples us emotionally. Mm-hmm. Lust kills love is the way they say it yeah. in one of the 12-step programs. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things uh, I just did a podcast with Sam Black yesterday, who I know is a friend of yours. And yeah, uh, he mentioned the ebook that they have about um, how the brain is affected by porn. So I just put in another plug for that resource that, uh, guys, you need to understand what you're subjecting yourself to um, Mm -hmm. as porn rewires your brain here. Right. Yeah. But uh, 
you know, what I didn't realize was that I was in an unfair fight. I was I was playing one on one against a superior opponent, <laughs> somebody who, you know, I, I couldn't show this thing any new moves. He'd seen me a million times, yeah. always three steps ahead. And I could imagine, you know, every now and again, I could kind of start to imagine that maybe I could win this fight. And that illusion was enough to uh, keep me in that game, always coming back to that game of one-on-one -on -one that I couldn't win. Yeah, It's that intermittent success that makes you think that eventually I'm going to beat this thing permanently. You know, I put a lot of uh, hope in marriage. I was convinced that marriage would solve the porn problem. Right. I mean, why in the world would you want to look at porn? Why in the world would you have imaginary sex when the real stuff is available? That's right. No, oh, man. What I did not understand was, you know, I had been using porn kind of during my college years. I rationalized my porn use as preparation for marriage. Yeah. Not knowing that I was actually poisoning my marriage. Mm -hmm. I was allowing pornography to create expectations for marriage uh, that no woman on the planet would ever be able to fulfill. Yep. And also it was warping my view of women and mm -hmm. of what uh that, that uh and my wife's a woman and uh yeah so i was just setting myself up for all kinds of disappointment and my wife as well yeah i married a beautiful woman and uh you know and i'm not saying that you know marital sex was unsatisfying right uh, i am saying though it could not scratch that deeper itch yeah and i was and here's the thing i when i finally got into recovery i remember my first sponsor he said a lot of things that shocked me early on and uh at one point he said nate you've never made love in your life i wow. was insulted yeah i was insulted i said look i got three kids <laughs> i can he says you've had sex exactly your dog can have sex yeah uh, but there's this disconnection now between sex and love. And we're going to, what we're working toward is connecting that again. And and I can testify that there is, you know, my, my marriage became so much better when I finally found freedom from pornography and, and stopped pursuing lust. That now love became an option. Right. Connection became much deeper. My wife, paradoxically, became much more beautiful. Yeah. I don't know what... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, the thought that comes to mind, I, for me personally, I, I told you at the beginning of this, I, I never had an ongoing struggle with pornography, but I did have an issue with masturbation. And it sure. was, it was I, I felt like I was saving my wife from the level of desire that I had for her. Mm -hmm. And so if I could release some tension occasionally, then that was helpful in the shower or whatever. Um, yeah. But... I, I, I read uh, it was an article and, and heard someone talking about this idea that um, we are stealing from our wives, from our marriage. We're, we're focusing intimacy somewhere else. And so our only outlet for sexual engagement, sexual satisfaction must be romantic relationship with our wives. And boy, when you start focusing all your energy there, because that's your only resolution um, things change and it gets better. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, you know, that I was operating under 
the belief. It's a deep belief. Uh, it's accepted as a truism in our culture and very often even in the church. I was under the impression that uh, sex for me was a need. Yeah. As essential as my need for air and water. Uh, more essential than sleep, more essential than food. I'd forego food. I'd forego sleep for sex. Yeah. Uh, and that if I didn't have sex uh, with self or somebody else, I was probably going to explode. Right. Uh, turns out that is absolutely false. Sex is completely optional. Yeah. Uh, but my belief that it was a need caused me all kinds of pain and distress and physical discomfort and, uh, whenever I was deprived. When I was finally relieved of that illusion to think that I can actually live a fully satisfied human life uh, celibate, yeah. sex is a wonderful gift. It's a, it's a great thing. It's not bad at all. It's a wonderful gift, but it's, it's optional. And yeah. I can be fully human and happy and satisfied and celibate and not have sex today or this week or this month. Man, does that, first of all, now the gift becomes much more of a gift. Yeah. Right. It's because a greater celebration. Has changed. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And my misery when I'm not having sex goes away. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. But that takes, that takes uh, learning. And I could only begin to believe that when I heard it from other guys who knew it to be true. Yeah. And their lives showed that they were much happier. Right. Um, their their marriages and uh, romantic relationships were blossoming and flowering in a way that mine wasn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was only in the company of other men that I began to get free of some of the, you know, insanity, the, the misconceptions that drove the insanity of my compulsive sexual behavior. My friend calls it stinking thinking. I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah, and that's sure. Uh, that's where he goes. So you yeah. also thought that because um, you were a pastor at one time, you served as a pastor yeah. and you thought that this this position and responsibility of holiness was going to be a uh, a pathway to purity. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's so yeah. I bought into the shame-based accountability model. Now I believe in accountability. Sure. But but shame-based accountability says I will find I will put myself. I will either willingly tell the truth to another person and subject myself to their scrutiny, or I will step into the spotlight where I'm always seen, and the fear of exposure will be enough to keep me from going there. Yeah, the fear of shame will be enough to keep me from going back to that medication. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah, certainly, when being holy was my job, I would be holy. Yeah, how that. Go? Uh, didn't turn out. I just became a better liar and a better hider. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the addiction won out. I was very, very, very careful. Sure. Uh, porn actually took me places I, I hadn't intended to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, one very awful Christmas Eve, three years in the ministry, a little, almost four years in the ministry, uh, uh, 
I, you know, as, as it was beginning to rain on a Christmas Eve uh, and I'm driving alone in Fort Lauderdale, I pull over to pick up a girl who I, I think I'm doing the chivalrous thing to get her in out of the rain. I don't know what she's doing until she's in the car and propositioning me. But at that point, I had seen similar scenarios in pornography so many hundreds of times. Yeah. Uh, that I went into automatic pilot. I knew the script. I knew the next move. The ritualization uh, of the absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I crossed the flesh line. I yeah. went from porn, which and I had even rationalized porn use as kind of my protection against infidelity. Infidel yeah. Right. Yeah. That it was only between my ears, and if I was doing that, that was a way to keep safe. Yeah. Baloney. That set me up. And when the opportunity presented itself, you know, I began this. I mean, and that was just horrendous. Yeah. Doing what I despised and unable to stop. Uh, yeah. So. Well, let me let me ask you this, because our theme for this month is the nobleman walks in sexual integrity. Yeah. And so you were you were living one way, but presenting yeah. a different way. Yeah. Um, and so how, how did that in that, um, tension just kind of grind on you in your life, oh. in your, in your spiritual life, in your relationships with others? I mean, I, I, there are a lot of guys living with that inconsistency and that tension in their lives They're They present one way and live another way. And it's, it's a broken mess. It really is. And, you know, and I'm, uh, and I was a pastor. Yeah. I genuinely like people. Uh, people genuinely like me. I can be uh, gregarious and, and uh, extroverted. People were drawn to me, but I never could let anybody get too close. Right. Because if they got close enough, they might see the dark part. Right. And if they saw the dark part, I would be shamed and humiliated and rejected and they would run. Yeah. So that impeded uh, certainly my effectiveness in ministry. Mm -hmm. I was a good performer, great in the pulpit. I could be good in short conversations. Uh, but I, but here's the thing. <laughs> People, I told myself that I was inspiring men during all those years. Mm -hmm. When I really think, looking back on it, that what I was doing mostly was intimidating them. Mm. I, I was, I was, conveying the impression that I had figured it out and I knew how to live the successful Christian life. Right. They were impressed with me. They knew Nate could do it. They would listen closely to my recommendations. They would buy the tapes of my sermons back when tapes were a yeah. thing. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, unless they had been caught doing something truly ugly, they did not really disclose to me. Yeah the deep parts of the battles that they were in, not in the way they do today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, meanwhile, I was, I hated, I despised my own hypocrisy. I lived in such private shame and humiliation. It was depressing. Yeah. It was very, very stressful. I wound up in the hospital with chest pains thinking I was having a heart attack. Uh, and it was the stress. It takes an awful lot of mental and emotional energy to run two lives simultaneously and to keep them separated. Yeah. It was like running two operating systems on the same computer. And your wife is unaware. Right. She knows something's wrong. Yeah. 
Uh, she thought it was her. Yeah. That seemed like a good explanation to me. I went with that. Yeah. Uh, Take advantage when she did, of her willingness to say, I've got some, I, I'm yeah. not measuring up. I'm not everything. Right. God. Yeah. And, and when she wasn't blaming herself, she was blaming ministry. Mm-hmm. So when after five years, I woke up on my 30th birthday knowing I couldn't keep this up. Uh, it, it was at that, it was a time in history when prominent Christian leaders were being exposed. They're all over the evening news. They're on the, they're on the uh, magazine covers. And, and uh, to me, the thought of ever being discovered, that was the most horrific thing. And I wasn't famous, but I was building a good reputation. Yeah. And the story was juicy enough that when I was caught, uh, I would wind up, uh, you know, on, in the paper, probably on the front page, maybe above the fold. And that was just unspeakable. I, so I knew I had to either quit the behavior or quit the ministry. Right. And at that point there was life, there was only one I could do. So I quit the ministry. Yeah. My wife was relieved, even though it was terrifying. We had three kids and we didn't know how we were going to survive, but she thought maybe the ministry was it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the ministry wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> I went into business. God was gracious. He gave me a route to, to but I, I had the great misfortune to now to make more money than I'd never, than I'd ever had before with even less accountability than I'd had in the ministry. Sure. And, uh, and that's, you know, so it really went very dark for very long. That became when I re- when I reconstructed Mike, my best one one of my jobs in early recovery was to p- create a spreadsheet and see if I could figure out how much money I had spent on my addiction. My best calculation is three hundred thousand dollars. Wow, on porn and prostitutes. Now, and that but, that was how much you spent. There are lots of guys who have spent a lot of money and then go through a divorce and lose their whole family. And so oh, God, yeah. God was gracious to you and spared your family. And and um, and, to, uh, and uh, I almost hesitate to say I spent that money because today you don't even need to spend money. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't want a guy to minimize what he's doing by saying, Hey, I haven't, I'm not spending money. (laughs) Right. I'm not taking bread off my table like Nate did. Yeah. I'll tell you my greatest regret though, Mike, is that I spent my children's childhood. Mm -hmm. I spent, um, in all, you know, 20 years of my wife's life, 20 years of mine. Yeah. You know, you know, trading my birthright for a bowl of beans, as somebody once did, yeah. you know, day after day. Yeah. yeah. So I'm grateful that I was finally caught. I'm yeah, grateful so that my that wife. Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, we had, uh, we had moved. We had moved from South Florida. We'd moved to uh, Middle Tennessee to be in anticipation of the birth of our first grandchild. That's where our oldest son and his wife were living. And... Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, it was amazing. Mike. Yeah. We moved from South Florida and uh, we bought a house and now we're buying furniture and we're hanging curtains and we're walking to church and we're holding hands and the obsession lifted. And I thought, wow, all that time, the problem was Florida, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, until we started running out of money. Yeah. And then I started to get scared. And then I reached, you know, for that 
for that medication. That fear medication, man. So late one night after Allie had fallen asleep, I slipped out of bed, went back into my office and fired up the computer and started downloading porn. And by this time, you know, the game had changed. Sure. I, I wasn't paying for porn anymore. Now I had broadband and I had an endless supply, an endless variety of virtual sex partners delivered free of charge. Yeah. You know, in the, in the, in the privacy and anonymity of my own home. Um, and, uh, you know, time disappeared as it does whenever we're in a dissociated state. I don't know how long I was there. All I know is that at one point I looked up and my wife was standing there. Hmm. I, ha I hadn't even heard her come in. Yeah. And you had asked me to silence my phone, uh, and I didn't do it. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Um, uh, yeah. She didn't say anything at that point. She just turned around and left. I quickly shut everything down and followed her back into the bedroom, apologizing and explaining, and yeah. promising, you know, begging. And uh, she forgave me. It was a very long night, but she forgave me. But a couple of weeks later, Allie found a condom on the floor mm. in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. Yeah. Because uh, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, we pick when we pick back up, we quite quickly go back to the go state we were in before. as far oh, as you were before absolutely yeah and the pit is bottomless and, isn't it oh it is it is it is what you know i was looking for years for i don't know the ideal experience the perfect mm -hmm. woman the perfect what was i searching for all i know is i never found it yeah but i kept looking uh and it was at that point that ali just said i'm done she said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. Mm. And I don't think you can ever change. Um, you know, they, they say that four out of five guys who seek help for sexual, uh, com sexually compulsive behavior only do so after receiving an ultimatum from a wife or a girlfriend. So that's 80% of guys. Yeah. Have to have an ultimatum. So, yeah. And, and that's what I got. I'm one of the four. Yeah. And I'm grateful I am so grateful that Allie drew that line and she withdrew from me. Yeah. Uh, there was absolutely no guarantee. The, the, it did not look good for my marriage to survive. Yeah. It did not look good at all. Um, you know, because at that point, my promises to reform meant nothing. I'd turned over more leaves. You know, I had zero credibility. Right. If anything, if I was going to have a chance, I was going to have to do something I had never done before. Yeah. I was going to have to go for help. <laughs> I was going to have to tell somebody else. Right. I was going to have to admit that I'm, that I can't do this on my own. No amount of resolution, no amount of analysis, no amount of thinking, no amount of research, no amount of determination, no amount of, you know, sincere religious effort was going to get me past it. I was going to have to do something else. Yeah. And there are guys out there listening who are at this point. So what, what yeah. happened next? You know, I, uh, I went back to the internet, uh, went to the Alta Vista search engine. This is pre Google days. <laughs> this dates me. Yeah. Uh, and I typed in sex addiction, Nashville and hit, re hit return and discovered to my astonishment that I'd apparently moved to the center of the universe for sex addiction recovery. Wow. 
because there were a couple of 12-step programs, national, international 12-step programs headquartered here. There were groups, there were therapists. Um, I, uh, I called a number, left a message, got a return call in a few minutes telling me where there was a meeting that night in a church a couple mm. of towns over. Um, I remember driving up to the church, sitting in the parking lot as other people got up, uh, uh, you know, drove up and went inside. I couldn't find the courage to get out of my car. Yeah. Uh, drove away, spent an hour coming up with the story I would tell my wife, which I didn't need to bother because she wasn't talking. Yeah. When I was back the second week, about to drive away for the second time when I saw a guy I recognized from church. Wow. And he was, he was just a guy, but there was something about this guy that was different. You know, he was, um, he was a humble guy. He seemed yeah. comfortable in his own skin, but he, but he also was a confident guy. There was this, it was uh, very clear that he loved Jesus. But the most striking thing about this guy was that he talked about his sin in the present tense. Mm -hmm. See, um, I had thought I'd been pursuing integrity mm -hmm. for 40 years. And I thought that integrity was purity. Mm -hmm. That's how it had been defined for me. Yeah. I didn't know it hadn't, it hadn't struck me that integrity comes from the same, same root as integration. Integris. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I was trying, you know, <sighs> I was trying to be a guy who had no shadow in his life at all. Hmm. I didn't, I, and I didn't have the courage to bring, I, and I wasn't given the license or the permission to bring my shadow into the light. Yeah. To live a fully integrated life, to not hide anything. Yeah. I was trying, you know, in kind of the, current parlance, you know, in the Samson society, I was trying to, I was trying to be the monk and kill the pirate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, and that's an internal struggle. Right. That, Thinking yeah. that the monk was all good and the pirate was all bad and neither was true. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but learning to uh, trust the gospel, not having to be perfect or pure, be able to talk about uh, you know, the, where the admitting, here's the thing. I'll talk with guys when I, it doesn't matter where I go in church, guys will, they'll talk to me and they'll say, you know, I, I don't have a problem with pornography, but I'm not perfect. Yeah. They'll say, uh, you know, I have my struggles and I want to say, really, could we possibly be more specific? Yeah. Now that you've admitted that the battle isn't over. There's a battle somewhere. Yeah. Can you tell me where the front line is today? And if where the battle is the hottest, are you alone? Because if you're alone, I don't even need to ask how you're doing because I know you're losing. Yeah, you're going to fail. Right. Um, yeah, being able... Yeah, yeah. So I followed that guy into that meeting and... I found myself, I remember coming out of that meeting just furious, furious that I had spent a lifetime in church and I had never been in a room that safe. I'd never heard honesty like that in my life. 
I never felt empathy like that. Yeah. Seen such humility, felt such kind. I, I don't think I'd ever heard Jesus like I heard him in that room from the mouths of a bunch of Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name. They just kept referring to him as a higher power. Right. But I'll tell you what, joining that group, and it took me a while to join emotionally. I went initially just to get the secret information, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, find the silver bullets so that I could graduate and leave right, and right, put this behind right. me. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I eventually found that while there's a lot of wisdom in that room, there's really no secret information. And what they, what I needed, what I was lacking was brotherhood. Yeah. Um, I was operating under the assumption, you know, I was a colossal failure as a solo disciple, hmm. not understanding that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples, That's doesn't right. want any solo disciples. That's never been his program. He came to reconcile us to God and to each other. He came to, to reconstitute the family of God. He first said, follow me to two guys, yeah. not just one, and then quickly added 10 more. Had them follow him around together for a couple of years as he taught them that the most important thing was that they love each other. Whenever he sent them out, he sent them out in pairs. And at one point he said to him, look, I'm going to be going away, but I'll still be with you under this condition. Mm -hmm. When two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there. Yeah. Two or three. I grew up singing, I come to the garden alone. Yep. Right? I just wanted this me and Jesus relationship that wouldn't require me to expose myself to anybody else or connect to anybody else. I, but I'm part of the body of Christ, not an organization, an organism, a living, breathing thing whose members are so closely connected, we can only move together. Yeah. And I was a freaking single cell organism dying. And I needed to connect. God told us in Genesis chapter two, yeah. it's not good for man to be alone. Right. And um, so, but we still, Satan convinces us that alone is okay. Yeah. And, and maybe safe. And that's another corruption of God's plan for us. Yeah. And here's the thing. I, the main reason that I kept all my uh, failures and wounds hidden was I was convinced that if people knew who I really am and how consistently <laughs> I fail. Uh, that they would, um, any chance of ministry would be over. Yeah. And people would reject me and they would run. Well, come to find out, you know, people do run. They run toward me. Yeah. Um, my ministry didn't really begin until I began to show people who I really am. Because now, you know, when I'm talking with a guy, if I'm willing to tell him who I am and where I am and where I am today, where the battle is today. I become the safest guy he knows. And now he's going to tell me, he's going to find the courage to get out of his foxhole. Right. <laughs> right. Because the freedom that you carry with you mm -hmm. is attractive to other guys. And I would dare say that, that, that the freedom that you saw in your friend getting out of the car at that first meeting, somehow yeah. you could sense that this guy has found something that I need and it's attractive. Yeah. And so we, you know, it's something that every guy is longing for is this freedom to be who I really am 
in exactly. front of God, in front of others, and that is attractive, it is desirable, and it draws people, um, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it's the gospel. Yeah. It's the gospel. Yeah. When I don't have to build or defend my own righteousness anymore, mm. when I depend fully upon another's righteousness that's given to me graciously, right? Yeah, that I can't earn. I can't earn. I don't need to pretend I have it. I'll get, here's the thing. As we follow Jesus, some goodness comes. Changes happen. Yeah. Um, Allie tells people today that she's been married to two guys named Nate Larkin. <laughs> you know, the transformation that I've tried to bring about on my own yeah. and failed is happening, right? Uh, it, it's not nearly as fast as I would like it to be, and it's far from complete, but there's no denying yeah. that in many ways some goodness has come. But here's the danger is that when that when we start to improve, we can start if we if we are do not if we're not constantly reminding each other of the gospel, we can start to put too much weight on our own goodness. Mm. We can start to think that we're better than we are. We can start to imagine that we're better than other people. And it's at that point that we become Pharisees and are in grave danger of crucifying again the Son of God. We begin to measure ourselves by ourselves. And uh, that's that's the wrong measuring stick for sure. Um, I want to always be a fool for Christ if yeah, I can. That's right. right. Well, listen, I, I move us forward to AA and your experience with that. The value <laughs> of understanding addiction is universal. Uh, some of the Absolutely. some of the some of the behaviors there and the tendencies, and then how did that move to the Samson Society? Um, yeah, you know, twelve step world. I I had no idea. First of all, I didn't know uh, how big the 12 step, the recovery subculture is until I was in it. Yeah. And suddenly I go back to church and I see lots of faces that I recognize (laughs) uh, because they're part of this secret thing too. Uh, Gosh, I forget his name. There's a professor uh, out at, oh gosh, now I can't even remember the name of the seminary out in California who, who says that, uh, the 12-step recovery program is the greatest spiritual revival since the Great Awakening. Wow, that's, a, that's quite a statement. The greatest move of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I do know that uh, my experience in 12-step recovery, oddly, uh, because they intentionally don't allow you to speak in explicit Christian language. Yeah. Uh, I was offended by that early, you know. Uh, you know, cause I knew my higher power could beat up their higher power. Uh, you know, I told myself I was there to be a missionary yeah. I'm there, you know, I'm going to Christianize AA. Yeah. And what they were really, what my sponsor was able to do was he said, you know, you have all this big talk about God and you've got an MD, you know, you got a master's degree in God. The difference between you and these people is they actually trust him. Yeah. Right. Um, I got, I'd always gotten preaching and I got in teaching for the first time I got coaching. Mm. Um, and uh, I learned so much from those folks in 12 step recovery about the practicalities there of trusting go. God, uh, about, uh, about doing a fearless moral inventory, 
about stepping away from shame. I don't think you can actually do recovery without at least a rudimentary understanding and faith in the gospel. You have to believe that there is a, a higher power, a God who is affectionate and accepting toward you. And that redemption is possible. If you don't you have, have the to hope believe that of redemption, yeah. which we would say comes through the hope of the resurrection, yeah, uh, I yeah. Mean, you start to weave all these pieces together, and so I, I see where you're headed with this. All I know is that reading the big book and going to meetings and you know starting to tell the truth about myself and step out of the shadow, it opened doors and windows on the gospel that I had never seen. Mm-hmm. The Bible became a different book. To me, I saw stuff I'd never seen before. Yeah. I'd been reading. It's like I got a new pair of glasses. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the good news got a lot better. It really did. There you go. And and a lot of the burden that I had been carrying, I got to give that burden to somebody else, right. somebody far bigger than me. So I could just be human. Yeah. And it began to bubble out of me. And eventually I was invited to 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 teach a to assist in teaching a Sunday school class at our church. I declined. Yeah. I said, I can't do it. And then the guy who asked me said, why not? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a sex addict in recovery and I can't guarantee that I won't slip. And he said, well, I think you should teach anyway. And I said, well, with all due respect, I mean, you're not the pastor of the church. He said, go talk to pastor Scotty. So I went to talk to Pastor Scotty and I told him my story and I told him why I couldn't teach the Sunday school class. And he said, he was, he was so great. He said, okay, number one, please teach the class. Number <laughs> two, uh, can you fill the pulpit three weeks from now? Wow. And, uh, and uh, I gave him my phone number and I said, if you run into other guys with a similar problem, uh, feel free to give him my phone number. And my phone started ringing. Hmm. And, uh, and pretty soon I'm walking with a dozen guys and, uh, and by the way, not all of them with a sex story. Yeah. Cause, uh, it turns out that, you know, you know, I've told my story at this point to, but today to hundreds, thousands of guys, most of the guys that I talk to are not sex addicts. I don't think. Not to the degree that I would say I have been a sex addict. Uh, But I've never told my story to a guy who does not respect the power of sex. Mm -hmm. I've never told my story to a guy who hasn't done something sexual he's ashamed of. Yeah. Um, And I've never told my story to a guy who doesn't have something in his life that's bigger than he is. Yeah. And the question is, who's helping him with that? Yep. Uh, so I found myself eventually walking with guys and I would bring them to 12 step meetings. Some guys fit in the 12 step meetings. Some didn't. They had a hard time not being able to talk openly and explicitly about their Christian faith and cite Bible verses and do that kind of thing. Others didn't fit just because I'm going to sex meetings and theirs is something else. Yeah. Um, but I came to understand, however, that all addicts, share an inner architecture Mm -hmm. and the healing journey is the same for all of us. And, uh, and when it became clear that we wanted to have an egalitarian Christian brotherhood where we could just walk together, walk this healing journey together, no matter what a guy's primary issue is and just play these principles out. That's when we decided to start 
the Samson Society. We started it in 2004 wow. with, with a dozen guys here in Franklin. And then we put out the book in 2007, Samson and the Pirate Monks. Uh, the audio version does not include uh, what the print version does. The print version has short versions of a, stories of a bunch of other Samson guys. My brother's yeah. that first kind of crop of Samson guys. Um, and we, we put the book out in the hope that it would inspire some other men to do something similar, to start Samson groups or something like them. Uh, I really don't care what you call your group. Yeah. As long as, as long as it's, you know, it's not bull, you know, yeah. let's, it's something more than a pancake breakfast. Let's do, let's do the real thing. And about 500 groups have started local groups since the book was, uh, and then the big step uh, for us, the most recent big step was two and a half years ago. We launched uh, online meetings using a new technology I had never heard of, something crazy called Zoom. Yeah. Uh, where guys could actually get in rooms together. And uh, so when COVID hit, we were already up and running. Yeah. Uh, and that now uh, our goal, by the way, is to have at least one online meeting every hour of every day. Wow. Uh, we're not there yet, but we're making great progress, especially under COVID. So it's going global. We already have got meetings, not just in English, but in uh, Italian, French, and Spanish. Uh, and guys from around the world are connecting. And here's the amazing thing. I, had, I know this. I know recovery requires relationship. I know that, which is why I was resistant to the idea of online meetings in the beginning. I had to be convinced. I thought that relationship can only form in a shared physical space. Yeah. I didn't think it could happen online. I have been proven wrong. And I have seen now guys developing deep, strong, enduring, helpful friendships with guys they haven't had a chance to hug yet, but they talk with them every day. Yeah. That is phenomenal. And how, yeah. how cool of God to go ahead of you and prepare you and the Samson yeah. Society for this lockdown, this global lockdown. You guys were already geared up and ready to go. Yeah. Because, um, again, I'll reference back the, the, the podcast with Sam Black from yesterday. Obviously, we saw hits on porn sites spike during this time of isolation. But he said they've seen hits on Covenant Eyes spike. So guys know they're in crisis. They need help. And so... Then uh, clearly relationship with Covenant yeah. Eyes and Samson Society is powerful. And so you guys were ready for this crisis. All in the providence of God. Only God. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad we didn't have to figure out Zoom when this thing hit. And, <laughs> yeah. How to scramble, you know. Wow. Well, listen, I want to be sensitive to time, but this has been phenomenal. And um I, I just I, I may get back on you or, or on with you again sometime because I'd love one, to. One of the questions that comes up frequently is, uh, how do I help my wife understand yeah. and appreciate my struggles, or um, what do I do with that? And I know that there would be great insight and wisdom because of what you've walked through with Allie, even the the dedication at the front of the book uh, to mm -hmm. Allie for you to be able to walk through this and then dedicate it to your wife who has been your faithful friend. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's huge. Only God. Yeah. Only so, God. Um, 
Well, so guys can pick up the book, Samson and the Pirate Monks. They can order it from anywhere. They can uh, listen to it on Audible, as I did. How do they? What's the website for the Samson Society? How do they get connected there? Yeah, yeah. Just go to Samson Society. And I'll tell you what. If you're a basketball fan and you remember Ralph Samson, you want to yeah. spell Samson with a P. There's no P in Samson. S-A-M-S-O-N. SamsonSociety.com. My phone's still ringing. Sorry about that. Um, SamsonSociety.com will get you there. Uh, the only way to get into the virtual groups, yeah. the online groups, we want to keep those completely safe. Yeah. We had some bad experience with early iterations of the website when we were running forums and chat rooms and we'd get people in there just trolling or cruising or you know just causing trouble. Uh, the only way you can get into the virtual meetings is to first attend a newcomer meeting. Gotcha. We've got newcomer meetings every hour, oh, every day, one a day, so that we can meet you, you can meet us. It happens by Zoom. Uh, you'll you'll attend your first meeting at the newcomer meeting. You'll learn how Samson operates and runs and what the rules are. Samson's free. Yeah. Uh, you know, no dues or fees. We do have expenses, but it's uh, supported entirely by the contributions of members. And uh, overhead is low. Yeah. So uh, that's incredible. What a yeah. what an incredible story. Well, I um, man, I just appreciate your time. There's so much again that to unpack. You know, a couple of things, guys, I would just whet your appetite for with this. Samson, um, Nate talks about his comparison of two characters in the Bible, Samson and David. Both of these guys got into trouble with sexual addiction or sexual exploits. One had friends around him, the other did not. And so there's there's another whole story there. And then for you guys, um, I got to tell you, there's a story in there about farting in church after eating cornbread, corned beef and cabbage that uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I laughed out loud. And so uh, you don't want to miss a story about farting in church. So, um, but yeah. guys, check out the book, check out the Audible, uh, check out SampsonSociety.com. You see? Com. Yeah, or, or either one will get you there. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Okay. Well, listen, Nate, thanks so much for your transparency. Thank you for the investments that you're making in other men. And uh, for I, I just marvel at God's favor on your ministry and how you have been uh, empty, humble, and obedient to, uh, to respond to God's call. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for your work at Noble Noble Warrior and uh, the Normal Man uh, the Noble Man Podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for a big audience. We're gonna have to find a way to link your audience to ours. That's awesome. Uh, link your podcast to our audience. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's All right. Cool. Thanks, man. Hey, let me uh, finish up, folks. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 28 with Nate Larkin. Be on the lookout next time. Episode 29: The Noble Man Invests in Faithful Men. We're going to have a series of conversations with men who have discipled men for decades, and we're going to talk about how they identify faithful men and what happens when you invest in the right man because God's led you to him. God works through selection, not just broadcasting seeds. God wants you to plant your seeds in the right people, and uh, so we're going to talk about that for the next several weeks. God bless you, men. Thanks so much. <laughs>